0: On June 30th, 1975, a young 23-year-old schoolteacher named Paula Etheridge went out to run some errands. It was summer, school was out, and she was set to be married in less than a month. She arrived at a local laundromat at around 5.30 that evening and loaded up three washing machines. Four hours later, the owner of the laundromat returned and noticed Paula's car was still in the parking lot. But when she went inside, the laundromat was completely empty. Empty except for the three washing machines still filled with clothes, unwashed, coins still sitting in the coin tray. Paula's clothes and car were still there, but she had vanished. Unbeknownst to Paula, when she went out to run errands that night, someone was watching her. She's reported missing and the community cast a wide net in hopes of finding her. Over the next few days both the police and local residents search by horseback and by helicopter for any sign of her. The people of the small town of Okeechobee rally around each other and pray that she's found. On the night she disappeared from the laundromat police received reports of what they first assumed was an unconnected event. Several motorists reported seeing a green car driving erratically through Okeechobee, with a struggle going on between the driver and passenger. They don't know it yet, but police are now locked in a race against time to get a serial predator off the streets before he attacks again. We find out what happened to Paula, and dive into a series of events that left a small town change forever, in today's episode of True Oki. The entire town of Okeechobee is on pins and needles following Paula's disappearance. It was such a small town at the time that almost everyone either knew her or knew someone who did. She taught home economics at the junior high. She also taught Sunday school and sung in the choir at First Baptist Church. The story of a young woman vanishing into thin air? is headline news. April Nettles-Garcia was 13 in 1975 and was a student of Paula's right before she disappeared.
1: Well, when I heard about it, it was actually my Aunt Tressie was the one that told my mother that there was a teacher missing from that school and that she was a home ec teacher, which at the time we only had the one home ec teacher. So when my mother asked me, did I hear about it or did I know her? I said, I didn't hear about it, but yeah, that was my teacher. And um, I remember watching the news and I, they would show it, you know, and it was very, at that age, it was very scary, you know. I do remember there was a big search party, um, people on horses, and I think it was three wheelers. It it being, me being young, it was kind of hard, you know, like I said, it was really scary too when you're that young and you don't hear them, nothing like that happening in a at that time. and um, And especially when it's someone you know.
0: As searching continues, police began zeroing in on those reports of a car driving erratically through Okeechobee on the night of June 30th. A truck driver reported seeing a car swerving as it drove, with a struggle going on between the driver and passenger. Another woman reported hearing someone scream as a car swerved in her yard. Then, when she looked out her window, she saw a girl with a look of terror written all over her face inside that car. Betty Hart Taylor was 15 in 1975 and riding in a car with her sisters Donna and Sandra and their mother Lois when they notice a man and woman fighting in the car behind them.
2: We were on top of the overpass and my mom she goes what are they doing and we all turned around to look the door of the car was open you could see two people struggling inside of the car it looked like his arm was around her neck. You could see her feet hanging out the door, and the door was bouncing back and forth, hitting her legs. And we were all, first being kids, we were yelling. We got to the end of the overpass and we turned to go on 710, and they were still behind us. There's a gas station that used to be out there. And my mom stopped at the payphone. Of course, back then nobody had cell phones. And uh, she stopped at the payphone, called 911, gave them the information. Then we got back in the car because the deputies hadn't showed up yet, they, you know. So we started trying to find the car again to stay with it until they could get there, but we couldn't find the car again.
0: Betty's mom, Lois, thought she was reporting a case of domestic violence. But after Paula is reported missing, the police come back, this time asking more questions about that car and the woman who was struggling with the driver. It wasn't long before Lois realizes the truth. She didn't see a domestic dispute. She witnessed a kidnapping. And now she's terrified that whoever took Paula will come back to hurt her or her daughters.
2: And I can remember my mom was, she was so scared. We never locked our doors back then, and all of a sudden we had to lock everything up. And she wanted to know where we were every minute. Of course, back in those days, kids just pretty much roamed. She wouldn't let us out of her sight until he was caught, because she was convinced that because we had called it in that he was going to come back and find us and do
0: something to us. Now when Betty's family described that car they saw, a blue-green 1967 Dodge, police noticed it matches up with a car belonging to a man they had arrested for an assault charge back in May. The suspect in that case was released on bond and returned to the public while he awaited trial. Police take Lois to a small neighborhood in Okeechobee called Basswood and ask her if she recognizes a car parked in front of one of the houses. There, sitting in the driveway, is that same blue-green Dodge. The man who owned that car was a 27-year-old named David Delap. Back in May, police had arrested Delap after he was accused of assaulting a 15-year-old girl. He had allegedly ripped the girl's blouse and made advances towards her. With a prior case involving an attack on a young girl, and his car matching the description of one that was seen carrying a woman in distress at the very same time of Paula's disappearance, the Lap became the prime suspect. In addition to that assault charge on a 15-year-old girl in Okeechobee, DeLapp was also previously convicted for robbery and assault with intent to commit rape in Michigan. Following a five-year stint in prison in Michigan on those charges, he was paroled. Then he moved with his wife and children to Florida. Once in Florida, he got a job at the Okeechobee School for Boys a juvenile reform institution that would go on to gain a dark reputation for the abuse and beatings of the youth that were kept there. Delap had been out of prison for less than a year before he attacked that 15-year-old girl in Okeechobee in May. He drove a bus for First Baptist Church, the same church Paula attended. Although there were no indications that the two ever spoke before, People who knew Dilap describe him as an odd man with an obsession with young women. When he would see a girl he liked, he would fixate on them. If he was leaving a store and saw an attractive woman walking in, he would turn around, go back into the store and follow her. As they gather more statements from others who saw that same bluish green dodge, Police set up around the clock surveillance at DeLap's house. Finally, seven days after Paul's disappearance, police stop DeLapp as he leaves a night class at Indian River Community College and bring him in for questioning. At the same time, investigators have also secured a search warrant for DeLap's car. When blood is found on the car, detectives turn up the heat in the interrogation room and DeLap. He tells police that on the night of June 30th, he was driving around Okeechobee when he saw a woman alone in the downtown laundromat. He pulls into the laundromat, takes out a knife, walks up behind her, and tells her to get in the car with him. He says she didn't resist, at first, only grabbing her purse before getting into his car but after a few minutes, the woman began to struggle, and Delap put his arm around her neck as she attempted to kick the door open. He tells police he remembers seeing occupants in the car in front of him, watching the struggle. After that car pulled off, Delap continued driving before pulling onto a side road. Then he grabbed the woman out of his car and hit her in the head. He said he didn't know how many times, only that he beat her until she quit breathing. Eventually, the LAP tells Detective Bill Arnold and State Attorney Chief Investigator Lee Brumley that he had hidden the body in an area near the Rim Canal that surrounds Lake Okeechobee. He leads police 20 miles east of Okeechobee into St. Lucie County, where they find Paula's body. Lying face down, and partly decomposed. Everyone who knew Paula says the same thing. She was polite, caring, religious. She seemed genuinely happy to be only a few weeks away from marrying her fiancé. My fondest
1: memory of her was... um that day when she came in and we went into her class and she told us that her fiance had asked to marry him. Oh, wow. And she was showing us her engagement ring. Wow. Of course, we were all, you know, young girls, so we just thought it, it was so wonderful and she had this beautiful ring and she was so excited about it.
0: The man who had proposed to Paula was named Ron Hayes. He worked for the local radio station, WOKC. Obviously, he was completely devastated. Just truly an unimaginable thing to happen to someone. But when it came time for DeLapp's trial, Ron was one of the first people to take the stand. With tears in his eyes, he told jurors that Paula didn't have an enemy in the entire world. De Lap's defense attorneys didn't have much to work with. He was seen with Paula in his car, admitted to killing her, and led police to where her body was. They seized on the eyewitness reports of the car door being opened during the struggle. This, they claimed, was how Paula really died. By falling out of the car as she fought with Delap. Delap's story changed as well. Instead of stalking a lone woman, he was only at the laundromat to buy a Coke. He sat down to drink it, and then blacked out. Next thing he knows, he's in the car fighting with Paula. Needless to say, the jury didn't buy it. DeLapp was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death for his actions. Notably absent for the first time at his sentencing hearing was DeLapp's wife. All throughout the trial she had quietly sat and observed, usually with a bible or other religious material in her lap. Right after DeLapp was first arrested, Palm Beach Post reporter Fran Kearse actually was let into his house by his wife, Joe Antley. In a wild story posted on the same day as Paula's funeral, Fran describes a house filled with religious books, with titles like What Every Christian Wife Should Know. But just as Fran sits down, the phone rings. It's the lap, calling from the jail. He tells his wife to get the reporter out of the house. Now. Years later, Jo would go on to write a book of her own about what it was like to be married to a murderer. In the book, titled Alone Outside the Walls, she reveals that Delapp was a habitual liar. On the night Paula went missing, Jo says that when her husband came home, he didn't have a shirt on. When she questioned this, He replied that he got Tabasco sauce on his shirt, so he wanted to put it in the washer right away. Joe says she prayed for Paula many times, openly in Delap's presence, asking God to find and punish the person who took her. She wonders what went through his mind hearing that. When she learns where Dilap hid Paula's body, she realizes she had actually been there before. He had tried taking her there a few months before Paula disappeared. One night, while coming back from Fort Pierce, he suddenly pulled off the road near a canal and got out of the car. Let's go see what's back there, he said. Joe refused, and after a moment, Delap got back in the car and they continued home. Not too long later, he would be dragging a dead body to that same spot. Another thing she relates in the book is the community reaction to her. She was refused service in stores. Her children were harassed in school. She wasn't able to find anyone to hire her. The sheriff's department, to their credit, protected the family the best they could. At the Speckled Perch Festival in Okeechobee a few years later, someone threw a glass Coke bottle at Joe and her kids, Instantly, four deputies emerged from the crowd and formed a protective wall around the family. It's a short book, only 100 pages, and offers a different perspective on the case. You can't help but feel a little bad for her, even though she comes across as somewhat naive. Oh, at one point, she describes how she and Dilap shared a similar sex drive, which is just, like, don't need to know that. In the context that you're writing a book about your husband who's a murderer, you know, maybe don't put that in. Like, no one wanted to know about that. Also, the trial and conviction of Dilap was almost botched in the most Okeechobee way ever. Obviously, after the trial ended, Delapp began to appeal the verdict. Pretty standard. The judge handling the appeal asked to see a transcript of the trial. Only problem? The court in Okeechobee only had a partial transcript. Still, the judge said, well, let me talk to the court reporter who made the transcript. The court in Okeechobee replies, they're gone. Vanished. Nowhere to be seen. Instantly, a retrial is ordered. The case is moved to Orlando, but the verdict still comes out the same. Guilty. Betty Hart Taylor, who witnessed Paula struggling with the lab, went on to have a long career in law enforcement. She's now a detective with over 25 years of experience with the Okeechobee City Police. Her office at the police station sits directly across from where the old laundromat used to be back in 1975.
2: First of all, they absolutely kept everybody in the loop because they knew how scared everybody was. And they they caught him so quick and they, they got him to take him to where he had buried her or hit her body and um, the, where he'd put her clothes. And it just really left a lasting impression because they did such a good job at it. And back in those days, they didn't have the techniques that we have today it was basically boots on the ground you know that's how they did it
0: so, um, at that time did you have any idea that you'd maybe go into law enforcement not you're...
2: a bit <laughs> my original my original goal had been to be a school teacher and um, that was probably the start of it for me
0: it really can't be stressed enough how important of a role all the eyewitnesses played in this case Who knows what would have happened if they didn't come forward? Paula would have just been another missing person. No answers, only lingering questions. Ron Hayes, her fiancé, years later went on to remarry and became a pillar of the community. He helped run the Okeechobee Community Theater and touched thousands of lives. Something in this case makes you think about is what impact on Okeechobee would Paula have had if she hadn't died? What role would she have played? How many people was she affected? How many people were robbed of the chance of knowing and meeting her and being taught by her? If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing. I rely on reviews when I'm choosing what podcast to listen to. So leave a review if you think others should check this out. My name is Richard Marion, and this has been True Oki.